Hi, my name is Pastor Marcus, and I want to welcome you to the Story Church Project podcast, Adventism Redesigned. Our topic of conversation here is the local Adventist church. How can we redesign them to tell their story loud to a culture that's no longer listening? I hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to redesign your local Adventist church today. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I'm super stoked because this week I have an episode with a title that might be a little bit um, pejorative, although that's not really the way in which I intend for it to come across. But my title this week is Why I Don't Want to Be a Historic Adventist. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that before I even start talking. Uh, the term historic Adventist, it means different things to different people, and it's, it is often used pejoratively. Uh, but for my purposes, I'm defining the term culturally, and, and, and what I mean by that is I'm referring to the idea uh, that I found in some Adventist circles, the idea that there was this golden era in Adventism in which the church was pure and holy, and now it's not. Uh, and I'm not using the term in, in an insulting or pejorative sense either. I'm just using it in the sense in which I've come across it in conversations. Um, so don't misunderstand the term. I'm not talking about Adventist identity, theology, the pillars of our faith, our pioneers, anything like that. I'm talking about this broad sort of idea, which like I said, depending on who you talk to, they're going to define that term differently. Uh, but I am talking about the broad idea that there was some sort of era, golden era. If we can just get back to it, um, then everything will be okay. I miss the good old days of the church. I wish we could go back to the way things were. I want my church back. Those are the sort of ideas that I'm talking about. Now, chances are if you're an Adventist, you've you probably run into phrases like this. In, in fact, you may have even said them. I remember back in my 20s, early 20s, uh, I went through this, this phase where uh, I thought that the church was lost. And anything that was different or new or innovative, I looked at it suspiciously. You know, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking at these things and trying to see, oh, what, what, what could God possibly be doing here? I was approaching them from this angle of suspicion. And because in my mind, all the churches were going down this path to perdition. If only we could shape up and go back to the way things were. In the days when the church was solid, committed, righteous, etc., then everything would be fine. And, and I thought that these feelings were a sign of my faithfulness to God. And, and I discovered something uh, actually kind of scary, which is what this whole episode is about. And it's what this whole um, blog for this week is about. I discovered that while I thought that these feelings were a sign of my faithfulness to God and, 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 and that my uh, allegiance to the church's past era was somehow a sign of my allegiance to all that is holy and good, um, what I actually discovered was that I was caught up in the sin of idolatry. Now, what do I mean by that? Allow me to explain uh, before you hit the stop button and decide you don't want to hear this weird guy anymore. Book of Numbers. There's a really interesting story, amazing story, actually. And I can't go into all the details here because there's so much there that I can unpack. But I just want to keep this simple. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21, there's a story where the Israelites are traveling through the desert and... They start complaining, all right? This isn't one of those journeys where they're like, hey, you know, Instagram selfie, travel Instagram page. No, this, this, this was 
Like they were, they were not happy. They were not enjoying this, and they were complaining and murmuring and whinging and whining. It, it, apparently, it got so bad that God responded in, in judgment. Now, different people have interpreted this passage differently. Some are, some say that this was an active thing, or some say that it was a passive thing. But whichever, that's not really my point today. Here's the point: the text says this in um, in verse six. As a result of their whining, this is what the story says. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. And many were bitten and died. Now, as the people are dying, God sends the following instructions to Moses, right? Because the people run to Moses and they're like, oh, what do we do? We shouldn't have sinned against God. And so, and so God sends these instructions. Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it, right? That's, again, that's number 20, Numbers 21. And that's verse 8. Now, let me set the stage here. The, the people are dying from the snake bites. God provides a solution to them, and that solution is a bronze snake. In, in verse 9, it tells us it was made of bronze, and it's attached to a pole. And whoever looks at it will live. Pretty simple. Now, again, this, this snake and this story, I mean, there's so much here. We can talk about judgment, salvation, mercy, all, all those things. But I just want to focus on one overarching theme that I think is represented here that I really see standing out. And that is that this serpent represents the blessing of God. There was nothing magical about the serpent. It only healed through the miraculous power of God. That's it. So in a broad sense, the serpent represents God's continued blessing and presence with his people, even though they were rebelling against him. And, and through it, he did something powerful for his people. It's really a beautiful story, and you can extrapolate so much amazing lessons, gospel lessons out of that. But here's what I want to focus on. Fast forward about 700 years. And the Israelite king Hezekiah, he's going on a campaign to purge the land of Judah from idols. Right? The people of Israel have been worshiping idols, and he's on this campaign to sort of, you know, this revival campaign. And he's purging the land of idols. And as he sweeps across the land on his righteous crusade, something really wild takes place. And you find this story in Second Chapter, sorry, Second Kings, uh, chapter eighteen, verse four. And this is what it says. He, speaking of Hezekiah, he removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. And he broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Now I want you to pause and, and let that sink in. Hezekiah is going through this, you know, purging the land of idols campaign. And, and, and he destroyed the bronze serpent Moses had made. And this begs the question, how dare he? I mean, didn't Hezekiah know that this bronze serpent represented God's continued blessing and presence with his people? Hadn't he read his Bible that through this serpent, God had healed rebellious Israelites and given them a second chance? Did Hezekiah have no respect for the history of his people, no regard for God's past dealing with his chosen nation? Why would Hezekiah desecrate such a valuable piece of history? Why would he dishonor such a rich icon? I mean, it was over 700 years old, guys. This is, you know, archaeologists would like die for something like this. And it stood as a testament of God's past acts. Why would Hezekiah do this? And the answer is very simple. Simple, sorry. If you just keep reading the text, and this is what it says. Because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. In other words, <clears throat> let me... Get to the point here. That which once stood as a symbol of God's continued blessing and presence with his people had become an idol. By the time of Hezekiah, the bronze serpent was no longer a blessing. It had become a curse, an object of pagan idolatry and false worship. And at least for me, the implication is very, very clear that even the good things God has done in our past history can be perverted into objects of idolatry. Even a blessing can be twisted into a curse. 
Now, when we talk about this sort of thing, I find it necessary to throw out a few disclaimers so people know where I'm coming from. I'm not the kind of guy who thinks that the church should just blindly accept every new thing just for the sake of it. And, and I'm not an anti-traditionalist either. In fact, I think traditions are good, they're meaningful, they're necessary. But I fear that oftentimes our refusal to evolve and adapt is rooted in an idolatry of a past era. We worship the church of yesteryear as though it is our savior. We idolize the ways of our ancestors as though they are our standard. We venerate, adulate, and exalt the former ways as though God is not here today, right now, in this new generation doing a new thing. And like the Israelites, we take that which was once a blessing of God and we turn it into a curse. Let me give you guys an example. This is, this is I mean, you can, you can talk about this and apply it to a million different scenarios. I want to invite you to chew on it and see how it applies in your life. But let me just give you a quick scenario. About four years ago, my wife and I were scolded uh, because we dared to suggest that due to the patterns of life in our current generation, a church that gathered in the afternoon instead of the morning might actually be a neat thing to try. So the person who scolded us used all the same arguments. This is how we've always done it. The church doesn't need to change. You guys are going to lead the church astray and so on and so forth. And we gently challenge the idea by appealing to two facts. First, the morning gathering is not mandated in the Bible. It's just a thing we've always done, right? And we talked about the history of that and blah, blah, blah. Um, second, we're not changing anything other than the hour that we meet. And, and there's nothing holier about 11 a.m. as opposed to 3 p.m. And a later service may open doors to reach people who would never attend the morning service. For example, there are more people working night shift today than there were in the 1950s which means that there are millions who are not even awake at 11 a.m. on Sabbath. A huge demographic is being missed by our refusal to adapt something that may have been a blessing in our past, but if clung to religiously, it can become an idol and a curse in the present. Now, if you go to the blog, thestorychurchproject.com slash blog, um, there's a footnote with an article uh, for research that was done in the UK that's found that between 2007 and 2017, the number of retail workers working nights as their main shift pattern has gone up 50%. And that's a quote from bbc.com. And, and you can find that new story uh, footnoted at the bottom you know, on the blog. But here's the thing. Ed Stetzer once said this. If your church loves a past era more than its current mission, it loves the wrong thing. And I couldn't agree more. This might be a bit offensive to some, and I, and I hope it doesn't come across that way because it's definitely not the vibe that I'm saying it with. But I'm always confused by people who say that they're historic Adventists as though adhering to a past era is a test of faithfulness. I'm not interested in being a historic Adventist. I want to be a biblical Adventist. And being biblical means that I can be in the here and now, interact with the world I live in, and speak life to contemporary reality while still being one with Jesus. I can keep my eyes focused on the mission he's called me to be a part of instead of daydreaming about nostalgic fantasies of a bygone generation. Because the truth is, <clears throat> the church is a living organism. It's not a museum. So here's my challenge today. Don't idolize bygone generations. God has led us in the past. Yes. He has blessed our efforts in the past. Yes. He has done awesome things through us in the past. Yes. And we can learn tons from our past. But we must not revere it. God is here today, now, and he's doing a new thing. 
Let's be a part of that. Let's add to the legacy our father started. Let's honor them by building on what they left rather than trying to mimic them. Our God is a living God, a contemporary God, a here God, a now God. And if you've been idolizing the past and like Hezekiah did to that bronze serpent, it's time you break those idols no matter what they might have once represented. Thank you guys for hanging out at the Story Church Project um, podcast this week. I want to invite you to come back next week for a new episode. But for now, there's one more thing I want to say before we wrap up. The Story Church Project is looking to not only influence the conversation of the future of the local Adventist church in a practical way, but it's also looking to influence that conversation in a narrative format. And what I mean by that is there's two themes that I'm really focusing on. The first one is story. What is our story as Adventists? And the second one is church. How do we redesign our churches? And as part of that, there is a book on the Story Church Project. It's just been redesigned. It's been up there for a long time. It's called Why is Adventism So Weird? And that focuses on the story part. And it's just been redesigned. And I want to invite you guys to check it out and download it. Now, here's the thing. It's not free. But if you download it, 10% of every purchase goes to the Dream Track Project, which is an amazing project that ADRA is doing here in Australia to help young indigenous and Torres Strait Islander kids um, who don't really have uh, a lot of the same opportunities that other people in society have. And it's about uh, speaking life and, and, and mentoring them and giving them a brighter future. So check it out, guys. Thank you for hanging out today. I'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I hope you were blessed. If you haven't had a chance, head over to thestorychurchproject.com to explore. And don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter. I've got a gift that I can send straight to your inbox. It's just for you. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week.